This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Richard Martinez. Richard is a veteran of the L.A. scene. He has many television credits to his name. He's performed with artists like Sam Harris and Kebmo, as well as Tony Award winners. He has recorded with Julian Lennon, Mighty Mo Rogers, Christoph Bull, and the Grammy Award winners Dan Hill, producer John Jones, and Rick Knowles. If you're interested in showing your support for this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash working drummer. We have tons of bonus content from former guests. We've got a new video series that Zach and I are doing for 2024. And most recently, our friend Matt Eisman, who was just recently on the show, does an amazing job breaking down some things that he learned from hanging out with the amazing Shannon Forrest. And Matt just does such a great job uh, breaking down these exercises and showing you how they're done, how they're applied, and uh, the production is just amazing. So for just a dollar starting, you can access all this material. We have uh, listeners supporting us uh, for dollars $5, $10, $25. This all goes towards supporting the show and supporting what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast. One of the names that gets tossed around a lot in the drumming community as far as classic teachers is Murray Spivak. Uh, his students included Chad Wackerman and Louis Belson. And one of his students also was Richard Wilson who embraced this Spivak technique. And one of Richard Wilson's students was Richard Martinez. And so Richard has become somewhat the authority on the Spivak-Wilson method, so much so that he's written a handful of articles for Modern Drummer. And uh, we get into some of that, uh, the technique and the approach and how it differs from Moeller. also want to thank listener Hal Ashmore for connecting me with Richard Martinez. We talk a little bit about the LA scene and then the Spivak Wilson method. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Richard Martinez. I've been doing this orchestra for over 20 years. I believe I sent you a, a, a video where we're doing this big Latin thing. Well, and it's it, the CEO of Kingston Technologies, the memory company. Uh, he has this orchestra. He's a drummer, uh, John too, and and he's one of my students. And so what he does is he has this orchestra, and. Uh, he gives he he donates our services. He pays us really well, actually, uh, to various nonprofit organizations that we support that he supports. So we work a lot. We have rehearsals. And it was forty, got up to almost sixty members. Now it's down to about twenty five, thirty ish. Uh, we have different singing groups. Uh, there's three or four singing group. We have. Uh, Lewis Price, one of the former members of The Temptations, is in our group now. So he put together a vocal group. We have one of the guys from Take Six is in his group. Oh, wow. These guys are just like yeah, amazing sounding. 
the woman that does uh, costuming for us is Phyllis Tony, who did Sting and Paul McCartney and Rod Stewart. So he brings those kind of people in. Our, our conductor is uh, Larry Ball, who was uh, Smokey Robinson's bass player for almost 20 years. So he just and Andrew Carney. I mentioned my friend Andrew Carney, who's in Nashville now. OK. You should go see Andrew. He's an amazing trumpet player. He's really oh, great. Wow. He's only been out there for about a year or so. And I, I'll, I'll see Joe Link or so on uh, on Facebook. And you know he's playing the jazz clubs and and doing the do out there. Yeah. So he was in it. Tim Messina was in it. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. He was in. He was in our orchestra. Uh, we I can't name all the other players. Uh, we have people that work for John Williams in it. So what? So what they do is they just bring in all these really great players, and he forms this orchestra, and then we go out and do nonprofit things. So we have one coming up for the Pacific Symphony, uh, which is uh, one of the symphony orchestras here in Orange County. Um, and when I, that video that I sent you, we were about to perform with the Pacific Symphony. So we had like a ninety-piece orchestra. So you saw our group. Oh yeah, I was, and I, I in that one, I did all the big band stuff. Mm-hmm. So kicking ninety pieces. Oh, so that's just it, man. Yeah, they they call that driving the bus, but that's got to be f- like flying the airliner. It's flying the airliner. <laughs> I, you, you can't. Well, yeah. And what's really cool is uh, what was the name of that conductor? He's from Texas. Oh, God, his name just slipped my head. Great story. This guy is from a little rural town in Texas, slept on the porch, right? Self-taught, got to the uh, University of Texas, never having taken a lesson ever, and ended up being like, took six years on a, on a coronet player, and ended up at uh, one of those big schools where, um, where someone said, you know, you should try conducting. I think he was like the librarian. Yeah. And it was it was like uh, and and so he went yeah okay I'll I'll try that and now he's a conductor here and in Berlin and he's great so when he conducts uh, he doesn't do the ictus the zip you know the the, the preparatory thing he okay. just goes bump it up you know he just does this and then you have to catch it so that that was a kind of a trip. Oh, right, so, so so in, in, so for for our listeners that aren't aren't seeing this, but sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so he's not, he's not, not, not giving you a, a a pickup or a count in. He's, he's just yeah. There's no count in. You know, you do that with rhythm sections. One, yeah. Two, a one, two, three, then downbeat. Yeah. Uh, it, it, typically in orchestral conducting, you do you do um, it's called a preparatory beat, and that's the one that scoops up. Yes. For those who are looking at your conducting charts, you scoop up and then down to one, one. So yes. he doesn't do that. No preparatory beat. So so he starts right at the top and he goes and he goes down to one and you got to catch it. You got to catch. That's amazing. You gotta, and it was the first time I'd ever done that. Now, his orchestra, they're used to that. So yep. they, they they don't need that. So what I did is to what I finally was able to do is I just let him take me. Rather than me going, okay, I I got this and I don't need this guy. So when he did this, I just completely let go. I just let go and this, and of course, two is, you know, scooping across to the side. And that's, of course, the downbeat. Because they they used to tell us when I was doing shows all the time, you got three beats Uh and that's it. Within three beats, you got to get it. 
Yeah. And so he's going boom, boom. And I'm like, boom, bam, I'm right there. And then yeah. boom, bam, wherever the four is, if we're doing a, a, a two and four backbeat, I let him just take me, boom, down, two, three, four. And I'm just two, three, four. I'm just playing with him. Yeah. I'm not thinking. I'm not feeling. I'm just connecting with a conductor. Not thinking, not feeling. No head and heart in this. I, I mean, I get it. That You know, the definition of time is the space between two notes. That right there is, we are taught at a very early age, that is the definition of time. And you, there's so often when you're jumping into a, a section or, uh, you know, a, a vocalist gives you a cue on where you're supposed to come in based on their phrasing. These are little nuances that you learn over time working professionally that I, I feel like it, it's a kind of a point of pride. You're like, man, I, I can jump in on this. I can do that. It just the years of experience allows me to do that, that I think most citizens wouldn't normally be able to understand. But you're talking about the next level of like just seeing that hand come down catch it but you must do you have an, an idea of tempos of what you're going to be doing i mean i guess then you do so well yeah you know we, we had a rehearsal so I, I have an idea of what's going to be happening yeah but of course then you're in the midst of the battle right right you got you got how many thousands of people out there you got 90 pieces of an orchestra your head's going zoo, zoo, zoo. you know it's, it's doing all sorts of crazy things that's when i just let go mm -hmm. i just you know i know what the, he knows what the tempo is uh, he's a great conductor because he also played cornet and dance bands and so forth. He understands rhythm section time, right? So, uh, so yeah, I have an idea what's going to happen. But those first few notes, I'm conducting. For those of you, <laughs> <laughs> you all know what conducting is. You know Just what it looks use like. Use your imagination. Use your imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's, it's yeah, right. So. Uh, but, but since I kind of know what the time is going to be, and he's not going to be going all over the place. Like I've played with conductors. I don't know if it was your podcast or another one I was listening to. Uh, it was saying that sometimes you have conductors that don't know how to conduct a rhythm section. And I've had that. Mm -hmm. They'd have no clue of what to do with us. You know, they're great at, you know, you know, conducting Mahler or something like that, where the phrases are moving and it's going faster and slower and la, la, la. But with the rhythm section, we wanted to, we need that steady time. Carl, Carl, Carl's his first name. Uh, he was solid. And mm -hmm. at one point in time, um, it might have been at the at the dress at, at the theater. Uh, he find, I, I always have a metronome with me. You know, mm -hmm. I'd have a metronome with me. So he finally, he looked down at his score and said, can you give me whatever the tempo was? Click, 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 click. Goes, okay, thank you. That's all he needed. That's he didn't. He didn't need it for a minute or what. He's okay. Got it. And so okay. So we, we kind of we both had an idea of what the tempo was going to be. So once he started conducting, it was there. I didn't have to watch much beyond the first couple of bars. Then I could go back to looking at the music. But on this particular one, when I was doing a lot of shows, I learned to read. In those days, you turned pages before we used iPads, but I but I learned to be able to turn pages both on the left side and the right side, oh. because depending on where the conductor is going to be, if the yeah. conductor's way over there, well, you better be able to watch him. If he's he's there, then I can do the left side thing. It's easier. Yeah. So for 
for for Carl Sinclair. That's his name. Okay. So wonderful. Carl Sinclair. So uh, Carl was, you know, I'm like back here in the nosebleed section, right? And he's way up there. So I had it over on the right hand side. I had the charts over on the right hand side. And uh, so as soon as as soon as we got the tune going, whichever tune it was, he conducted a couple, and then Larry con- conducted the rest of our show. Uh, as soon as Carl got it going, then I could, you know, just watch him out of my peripheral vision. But the first couple of bars, it was strictly on the conductor, no music. I had, I didn't know what the two bars are, just plain time. Anyway, it's interesting. I, I was watching a, a live feed. My I, my son is at Eastman School of Music, oh. studying classical guitar, and they had a concert. And it was a very modern thing. They had a drum set player on there who who was just wonderful. Did a great job. And uh, he was playing electric guitar and there was vocalists and it was very avant-garde, but they had a conductor there. And I was, my wife and I were watching here from Nashville. I was like, I just, I don't know how people do it. I don't know how I've, I've done orchestral work and I, it's in college, I should say. Um, And I just, I could not wrap my head around where the downbeat was, where that solid beat was and just, Every conductor has a thing. Is it is it where the hand is at the bottom? Is it when it moves up? You know all those things, and I, I know there's something to it, but uh, that uh, someone with more experience could could explain. But uh, well, I I I think I'm, I'm sorry. I, I no, go ahead. Please go. Yeah. Ahead. I was going to say that in those situations, it's it's where it's where the conducting pattern changes changes direction. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, so once again, I'm conducting. So, so, so if it's doing that, yeah, there, there's the beat was there. It's there. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So if it's like there's one of these yeah, really flowy kind of conductor, or like a Leonard Bernstein guy is doing all this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. You, you kind of you can kind of get in sync with their body is what it is. You're, you, you, okay. It's, it's not like when you were in college when you were if you if you took conducting. I took conducting. I loved conducting. I used oh. to bring scores home and I used to try to uh, conduct Stravinsky and uh, all that stuff. Right. But, but it's not that, you know, like in marching band, those guys are doing, you know, they're really square patterns. Right. That's, but, that's, that would be more comfortable for me. Let me ask you this. Once you guys start going, does then he work with you? It's like, okay, now you're keeping time or are you following him? Well, in this particular case, He's the captain of the universe because he knows what he's doing. Okay. He really knew what he was doing. He he can condu- I mean, he, he's a classical conductor, but he understood rhythm section stuff, which is a little different. Yeah. Uh, so I'm following him. If he decides that at some point in time he needs to pick it up, I'm conducting again. If he needs to pick it up, then my job is to to follow him. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold him back because he's the captain of the ship here. I understand. Right? Now, now, in certain cases, like in certain rhythm section cases where you have somebody that's rushing and you're playing like like some solid time and you don't want it to rush. Right. But in, in certain situations, if they some the singer, let's say or a guitar player, whatever, so, you know, they want to pick it up. You got to pick it up. Yeah. So, so but I can give you another example of another conductor that I work with. This is a long time ago. I used to work with a lot of star search singers. And so, uh, so this was one of the winners of Star Search. She had this guitar player brought along, who is now I think the head of the guitar department at USC. So there's there's myself, uh, this guitar player, and this singer. 
and uh, we're going to do this Star Spangled show, right? Which is cool. I love this. Yeah, my parents are there, you know, at the velodrome here in the, the big bicycle thing. They had the Olympic set, they get the fireworks and the orchestra. This conductor had no clue of what to do with the rhythm section. Just didn't know. She, when I was watching her doing the classical thing, she was great. Yeah. But when it came to rhythm section, she didn't know how to get us in. Carl, he was boom, boom, boom. I just had to follow him. Yeah. You see, he wasn't going to do a preparatory beat, but he was just going to bam, and you have to follow him. This person had no clue what to do with us. Yeah. And I mean, the time was all over the place, and we're playing like you know Sousa marches or something, and and some other stuff because you know we have the Star Search singer, so she's doing some you know big Star Spangled thing, you know, some R and B kind of thing, and. Uh, and so this conductor that night calls the singer and starts complaining about your street musicians. <laughs> Us. It's like, come on, really? Really? Come on. She calls, she calls and tells me this. Yeah. And so uh, I was angry, but you can't show it at the gig. Yeah. No, no. So we had another rehearsal. So that's when I brought my I brought my metronome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I brought my metronome. And as soon as the tempo started, when they finally settled in, I would sit, click, 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 and tap, touch. And then at the end, I would write the tempos in. Another one, tap, tap, tap. I'd write the tempos in. Tap, 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 write the tempos in. So, so I knew what the tempos of the songs are or the pieces. So I wrote them in all my charts. On the set list, I wrote them in there. So I know. So when it started at the show... Once she started, when she did whatever flourish she did to bring us in, forget it. I'm not watching her. Mm. I'm not paying attention because she doesn't know what she's doing with us. She's mm. playing these big phrases, you know, as conductors do. Uh, I'm wildly uh, gesticulating for those of you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right? So she doesn't know, just, hey, just give us this or just... You know, do, do something like that. Yeah. So I just, I just totally ignored her. I yeah. just, I just started the click. Did that work out but well? Did that work for you? She came up to me at the end of the show and said, "You did a really great job." <laughs> and I said, "So did you." <laughs> Where'd you find these musicians on the on the set of a Seinfeld episode? What's going on here? I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's a, for our listener. That's a reference because Richard here was on a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I vaguely remember that too. Is it, Elaine was dancing around probably when she yeah. walked by you guys. Yeah, it's called uh, Elaine's Little Kick. Oh god! That's All right, I, I got to revisit what a what a timeless show. I got to revisit that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. My wife works in the nonprofit world. So just my own int- personal interest. Like, so you're doing nonprofit work. Is it for all different kinds of organizations and different things like that? Well, that nonprofit no longer exists, but I did for but I did for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's for the CEO of Kingsync Technologies. He, uh, John, too, had become uh, familiar with this organization in Brazil. In Sao Paulo, specifically, called yeah. Meninos do Murumbi. It's the, the the boys of of, of this or of this uh, area uh, called Murumbi. And uh, so, what John asked, what John too asked me at one point in time, forty of these kids came up and, to perform here, and we, they brought us together and said, "Hey, what can we do to help these people raise money?" Mm-hmm. I thought, 
must produce a record. I know, yeah. I know this guy, John Jones, who, you know, as I mentioned at the first Fairlight, third Fairlight, worked for George Martin, right? That had produced uh, uh, Duran Duran, Duran Celine Dion, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I mean, I know this guy. I'm sure I can call him and see if he wants to do it. So, okay, let's do it. So then, uh, so then what happened is uh, I was asked to, okay, we need to find the most efficient way to to be able to raise them raise money you can go th- you can go through the profit world which is create a record company but then there's all these tax consequences there's all this other stuff you have to do or you can go through the nonprofit world which we could which would allow us to give more money and it, it, it gave us a certain degree of flexibility and so what uh, this woman uh, uh, Emily Richards who I just who I recorded with I think I sent you that photograph with uh, Steve Ferroni Steve Ferroni yeah 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 that was for Emily Richards who uh, who was the most downloaded artist of mp3.com when that used to happen over a million downloads yes. yeah and John Jones produced her that's why I met her so I talked to her and she said we'll just create a nonprofit record company mm. there's there's they're all over the, the Chicago Blues Society or something like the nonprofit record company yeah. uh, the Cornos quartet the classical quartet yes yes that's a nonprofit organization Is it really oh man I've been a fan of the, them for many years yeah so those are the models that I that I found and so when we wrote up the nonprofit uh, John let me use one of his attorneys uh, who does his nonprofit side, not not the corporate side, the nonprofit side. Sure. I work with this guy, and uh, to cut down on the legal fees, they had me do the research, which I love doing. I'm a total nerd for. I love the internet, right? So I yeah, learned yeah. to read 1099s. I learned to read not 1099s, 990s, which is the non. Your wife will be very familiar. Oh, she probably would know. Yeah, yeah. The, the nine. T- tell her I loved reading 990s. Okay. For those of you, <laughs> those, those are the tax documents. Oh, and God. you can actually because you have to file. It's a public document. And I read nine, and that's what I discovered. The Chronos Quartet was, uh, and you can see how much they earn. You can actually see what, what what they do. So we created a nonprofit record company. That's the that was the Music Is Hope Foundation. That's that's and, that's really inspiring. That's that's really fascinating. You know, I'm not sure what the what the specific nonprofit laws are in Tennessee. You know, in California. You know, each state has there's there's the federal level, and then each one, and then there's the state level. Uh-huh. But but if if Tennessee is like California. Uh, if you were, let's say, you were to create a nonprofit organization yourself, let's say you yeah. did that, and you decided you wanted to go out and play schools, like we, you could do that here. I could create a nonprofit organization. That's what yeah. Cronus Quartet does: is they get grants to then perform in schools. That's part of their part of uh, part of their writ is to do education. Yeah. So when you create your nonprofit, let's say you wanted to do that, you wanted to be an education music nonprofit. Right. And and if, if the grant system works the same in Tennessee and you decided you wanted to play schools. Yeah. Underprivileged, whatever you wanted to play uh, parks and recs. Right. And, and get in great grants to do that. You, you can do that. And it, yeah. I mean, there's a, so much difference between Tennessee and California. I, I wonder. But also I, I do have friends that have uh, and, and, and have been guests on here that that I believe have done some form of that. So I, y- y- what you're telling me right now is already, I've got, I've already got a little bit of a Rolodex happening of people that, uh, you know what, I think I know so-and-so and these guys that have done that, I could, I could reach out to them, but that's, that's wonderful. 
we have so much to talk about. So I, I, I appreciate this. You planted a seed, and so I don't feel necessary like necessary to go much deeper than than just knowing that that is available. Knowing that if any of our listeners are interested in doing something like that, um, that it that that there's so much other areas to explore in in what we do as musicians and sharing with the community and not just uh, in pursuit of our own, um, you know, successes in whatever form we're looking for, you know. Right. Hal was pointing out the fact that um, in my bio, I, I was working with a band and um, one of the first records they made, they hired Steve Ferroni to play drums. And so, um, you know, I was their touring drummer. I was like, well, th- th- at least let me tech for you guys and so they're like oh yeah no no please come to the studio hang out tech um we want you to do all the percussion and that was super fun to play oh wow uh, uh, you know it was kind of after the fact but i got to hang out and got to know steve a little bit um and and then saw that you had done that recently with the singer you know and that was that a live performance was that a recording you guys had done uh, that that was a recording i have played with steve live though he's yeah. he is john jones's guy or, okay. or or he's he's one of the uh randy cook is the other one that, that, that john jones uses uh, a lot uh but but i first met steve in the 90s they were working i think on an alan frew record uh, Alan Frew is, uh, was in Glass Tiger, a Canadian group. Yeah, I know Glass yeah, Tiger. Yeah, Alan Frew. Uh, yeah, we, I got to play with Alan Frew uh, opening for Fleetwood Mac. And I, I had this little unplugged th- kit that I used. But just, just remaining on Steve Ferroni, in the 90s, I was invited to, I think we were at the record plant, and just to watch him track. Yeah. And uh, I walked in there, and I had never... I'd done a lot of gigs, but I had never seen anybody like that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, somebody that plays stadiums, people yep. that play stadiums feel different. Mm. They have a very different feel than just your standard clubbing guy. I'm a, I was a just standard clubbing guy. They feel different. Their, their groove is huge, mm-hmm. right? In order to get 20, 30, 40,000 people to move, it's got to be, it's got to be really solid, right? Yeah. And he was, I had never seen anybody play like that. And I left that session, I had to go to do a gig, and I was different. I was a different human being. Yeah. And the different times I got to work with him and hang with him, he even hired me once to play percussion on a session. Yeah. And it was after he had gone back with uh, Tom Petty, or he was with Tom Petty, and the, the first bass player had rejoined Tom Petty. Yep. I don't remember the guy, right? So those two are recording together. You never heard anything like it in your life. Mm-hmm. Like the bass, you could not tell the, the the bass or the bass drums sounded like it had tone. <laughs> they were so locked. Yeah, right? yeah. They were so locked. And I sat there watching them track this session. And uh, he Steve brought some guitar player and he was some real estate guy in, in Malibu who Steve said, this is the most amazing guitar player you're ever going to hear. And he was. Don't know who this guy was. Utterly stellar. And then it came time for me to track. And it was like, you got to be, I'm listening to this. And so Steve says, it's rock, rock conga, no Latin. So, which is more up my wheel. Oh, yeah. That's that's an interesting distinction for sure. Yeah. So I, I managed to nail it in first take. 
And I wanted to, it wasn't anything special. It was like a blues tune or something like a blues rock thing. But after listening to them track and do their thing, it's like, man, this is, this is it. You know, the time that we got to play with yeah. them, it's the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I, he's, he's here in Nashville, uh, pretty regularly now these days working with this band generation radio, um, with, with some, a few people I, I know. And, uh, so I'm working towards getting him on, but, one of the things in setting up drums for him in the studio was he sent me a couple photos of kits. So based on those, I tried to set everything up as close as I could. What was, what I thought was comfortable for, you know, based on the photos. And he came in and sat down and maybe moved one symbol. And he goes, yeah, this will work. We can make a record with this. And then he never moved a thing. And, and, but yeah, you could just, as soon as he would touch a drum, you're like, there's something happening here is really amazing. Yeah. What a, what a just, just amazing thing. Can you tell me how like the scene has changed for you over the years? When I was first starting, this is a living, uh, I mean, that that's all gone. Uh, all those, the six nighters that we used to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That that's all gone. Yeah. As far as I know, I, I, I knew one guy that had one of those, someplace out in Orange County or Riverside or something, but all that stuff's gone. And when I was my busiest in the eighties and nineties, I was doing cabaret. I was the cabaret guy. That's how I ended up working with San Antonio award winners is because I was, I would do these shows and that's what acclimated me to working with singers. Cause this one show, these two different shows I did, it was like, could be six singers in a night. You're reading, just reading, reading, reading. Sometimes they're really famous people. Sometimes, like I, I saw Roseanne Barr for the first time when she had just done her HBO special. It's when she was still the pissed off housewife. Yeah. And she came out with this dirty house dress. It was during the show. And she just ripped the place. So, but I was doing a lot of shows like that. Okay. I had an I had another gig. Uh where I, I read three shows a night, three singer shows a night. Uh, one of our singers ended up being, uh, her name was B.J. Crosby, uh, who's just like Patti LaBelle. I had a hard time getting signed here. Went to New York and was in Smokey Joe's Cafe, which won a Tony Award. Great singer. So we had singers like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But So I did all of that. Then we had the unplugged scene that was going on. That's where I, I was working with Rick Knowles. Uh, the the and I was I was working with one of Desmond Child's singers, uh, which is Rick Knoll's wife, and that's how I met John Jones. John Jones uh, just finished working with Duran, and he flew into London. He flew in from London to hang with Rick. And Rick had done Circle in the Sand, worked with Stevie Nicks, uh, that Santana's tune, a little bit of this, little bit of that. That's Rick Knowles. Okay. So yeah, so I met. That's where I met Diane Warren and. But that was this whole scene of stuff that's yeah. all it's all gone now. All that stuff's gone. And so then what I able, was able to move into, because I had all that show experience of yeah. reading show, show after show. And I reading. Said, and reading, mm-hmm. following conductors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I really, really got into it. Plus, I loved conducting anyway. So, yeah. so then I started moving into doing Broadway-style shows. Gotcha. And th- that's what sustained me through uh, a lot of the 90s and early 2000s, was just doing shows. So I was no longer in the club scene. 
Yeah. I, except for doing blues. I became one of the blues guys. So I worked with like Doug McLeod. I'd work with all the regional blues singers, worked all the clubs. Mm-hmm. Right. And how I got into that was, I don't remember. <laughs> I think <laughs> one of my friends said, Hey, we got this gig and, and yeah. I love the blues. Right. I've been playing it and, and I, I, I know the music. I mean, you know, doing shuffle since I was in high school mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, so I, I did a lot of that, but those are all little, you know, little $40 gigs, maybe, you know, whatever, but just great blues players. I played all the clubs. I played the sit-in situations. I did that for, for a while. So I was doing shows, I was doing blues gigs and I was playing Dixieland at Magic Mountain. I had, I had a union gig. And so, so here's the funny thing. If I may speak about Dixieland for a minute. Okay. So when I first got this gig, I'm wearing a straw hat, man. And I'm wearing the vest and the, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do it because it's a union gig and I really should be serious about doing something like that and get invested in health insurance and all that kind of stuff. So I was doing it, but I felt silly. I'll just be honest with you. I understand. But then I was talking to, but then a friend of mine, I I was talking to a friend of mine, John Nyman, who's another drummer. I think he's up in Portland now. Uh, I was talking about, he said, Hey, I have these, these, those, these VHSs. And it was, uh, there's a, it was all New Orleans drummers. And one of those guys was working with Wynton Marcellus. I can't think of his name, but his grandfather was the first drummer to bring drums into the black church in new orleans was it herlin riley herlin riley yeah okay oh my god i put that thing on and he's play. he played saints but you yeah. jack do you mind please here, here, so yeah. here's some music so here's saints Boom, 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 uh, uh, right now it doesn't go into the see so as soon as i heard as soon as i heard her and riley he goes it's in three two clave now, the New Orleans drummers call the clave something else. I forgot what the name they use. Do they call it Bo Diddley? Uh, no, well, well, Bo Diddley does the bum to bum to bum three two clave. I have a lot of singer songwriters here in Nashville that, 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 that give me the Bo Diddley beat. And I, I don't say clave, you know, I just say, okay. <laughs> okay, you got it. <laughs> right. And But that's what it is. But, I'm just but, curious to know. Yeah. But all of, all of those, two, many of those tunes are in. Clave. Yeah. Now the other thing that that I I saw watching Herlin Riley was the bass drum. Oh my God! And so, you, you know, you know Sugarfoot, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so Sugarfoot. I, I got I've got to meet him more than a few times. And uh, one time was I, I was at this audition uh, for Morris Day, uh, and so I was at this Morris Day audition, and uh, and. Uh, so Sugarfoot, uh, Jonathan Moffat, for those of you who don't know, sure. Sugarfoot was there. It was just right after they had published, uh, Modern Drummer had published their article about him, and he was talking about his foot. So, you know, we didn't have YouTube and stuff or anything like that then. So during the break, I went up to him and said, hey, man, can you show me some of that foot stuff? So he goes and he's astounding. Well, what I found out, 
later, the first TV show I was on was uh, uh, John Rivers' show, and the other act was the Neville Brothers. Mm-hmm. Right, so Willie Green was playing drums. So during the break, I'd spent a few months in New Orleans in a little lounge band, and so during the break, I I said to Willie, and I don't know if it was which of the Neville Brothers it was that played the percussion. Uh, but I said, hey, man, can you play one of those New Orleans things for me? And at the time, I didn't understand the music. And they went into this thing. It sounds Caribbean, sounds Latin, mm. sounds funk. But that's the mix of New Orleans. That's all those cultures circling yeah. around each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now, Willie Green had an amazing foot, too. Okay. And I... As I was playing Dixieland and I got to understand it is the boom, 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 boom. It's that foot thing. But I didn't really understand it until another drummer here in L.A., Kenny Seurat, is a New Orleans drummer. Mm-hmm. I was I asked him, hey, man, can you sub this Dixieland gig for me? They're doing something at the zoo and I can't do it. And he goes, oh, man, I, I said, I said, listen, just take a snare drum. You know, you know, just take a snare drum and a cymbal. He goes, well, what about the bass drum? I go, you don't need a bass drum. She goes, no, no, no. I said, you don't get it. He said, the bass drum is it. Yeah, well, That's it. He said, yeah. when you do second line, this is what he's telling me. So he yeah. said, when you, when you do second line, the first person they hire is the bass drummer. Because that's that's the bottom. That's uh-huh. boom, 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 That's the thing that's setting up that feel. Yeah. It's not the snare drum. Yeah. So he said, you hire the bass drummer, and then you hire the the first trumpet. Those are the first two people you hire in second line. Okay. And now I'm watching Harlan Riley, and I'm playing the music. I'm playing Dixieland now every weekend, and it suddenly dawned on me. This is not some stupid corny gig. Yeah. This is an opportunity for me to learn the antecedent to everything I do. Rock, Excellent. funk, swing, yep. blues. And when I took it that seriously, I ended up getting a cocktail drum so I could stand mm-hmm. up to play at the cowbells and woodblock. And when I really got into it, then kids started stopping by us and break dancing and dancing and doing stuff because now I understood what this was, right? This this was dance music. It is dance music. This yeah. was club music, right? This is what they swung and danced to. And when I took it, when I took it at that level of seriousness, the way I played blues changed. It changed. The way I played swing changed. The way I played funk changed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it, that's when it occurred to me why New Orleans drummers are so powerful. I mean, holy moly, they, they approach drumming completely different than I did, yeah. right? They're, they're looking at this totality of stuff, right, that I'm not looking at. And it, it changed everything. I'm wondering if they're seeing each part of the drum set separately as in a second line than then a lot of us see the drum set as a complete instrument. I, I think it depends on the drummer. Like okay. like like my friend Kenny Seurat, I would say he probably does because he plays percussion too. Yeah. Right. So and he plays like uh, one of the things I was very happy with. I would almost say proud 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 of is he started hiring me to be his snare drummer for his second line. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's when he, and then he he'd bring his tuba player a guy he grew up with in new orleans to play tuba with him and uh 
And oh my God, those two, and it was so funky. Mm. So he would understand. But uh, some other people, maybe just always just played kit. They, they may not understand the separation or maybe they would know it inherently. You know, I, that, that I can't answer. I do know coming from where I did, it, it, that's how it hit me. You know how when when you watch somebody like Alex Acuna play drum set or Ayrto Moriera play ah. drum set, there's just something different about the way they're hitting the drum. It's almost like we know what you can do with your hands. We're going to put some sticks in there and let your feet go and put you in front of this thing. And um, that seeing those guys play when I was younger changed a lot about how I saw the instrument just alone. I have to say that that's why I learned how to play percussion, which is how I ended up working with John Jones and all those people, because I would go see Alex at the Bay Potato or uh, or Richard Garcia, who's another friend of mine. You see Richie Garcia, uh, Chuck mm-hmm. Silverman, yeah, and I'd see all these all these guys who just really could play Latin percussion. They play congas, right? So I thought uh, I should learn how to play congas to enhance my ability to play drum set. And it was for that very reason that I did that. And I did. I I, I, I got a pair of bongos first and started and started to learn how to play them. Uh, uh, and then I started getting hired for gigs. I mean, I would have never guessed. I was just trying to learn how to do this. But in answer to what you're saying, it did change how I thought about the drum set. Like, for example, that, that you know, this beat that we all know... Boom, uh, uh, that's a mambo. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 That's right. There's this other. One. I I don't know Congo. There's another boom, 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 boom. So you have a, a a right hand on on the on the low tom or low drum. Boom, 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 back in the swing. Oh yeah. That that that's what happened. I'm sitting there playing. I went, oh my god. That's why that's why those guys sound like that. They have such a much deeper understanding, you know, whether it's cognitive or not, of what this drum set does. Because the drum set is a contraption. It's yeah. the traps. It's a contraption. Yeah. And it makes it started to make so much more sense than the learning the New Orleans thing. And there's this other layer of stuff. I used to do also I used to do a lot of international gigs. I played Russian gigs. I, I played I was that guy that could play all that stuff. And uh, they they're coming at it from a completely different re- different place. Oh man, it's right? insane. Yeah. They, they call it umsa 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 umsa. There's no clave in it. Right? Oh, that's true. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no R funk in it, right? So it made sense to me why Abba sounded like Abba, right? Now they did stuff with the clave esque, but a lot of, I'd say a lot. Some of Abba is umsa, with some version of umsa, 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 umsa. It's European. It's not. It's not African based, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, all those connections, I think, are really important. And, and a lot of my friends, they have, 
you know, certain gigs and certain styles that they play. But when we talk about what you're studying or what you're working on there, so listen, I, I'm not doing any Latin gigs, but I work out of this book or I, I, I play along with this stuff. I just, I keep that muscle going and I feel like it helps me if I'm working on a Sango thing, my left hand is better at funk when I'm working on, um, these swing patterns, then my country shuffle is happening. And, um, I don't know if we always make the connection, but as you said, understanding the origins of our instrument, especially when you're talking about New Orleans and second line, it transcends and it finds its way in all of the styles that we're doing now. Yeah. You know, I, I used to, uh, I, I, I used to know Luis, I used to know uh, Luis Conte, right? So, so I was at his house once and, and I was asking him this question just before I learned how to play uh, a hand drum. And I was asking him uh, what it is about, you know, Latin players being able to play rock and roll. I, I didn't, I couldn't get it. He goes, Richard, he goes, he goes, check this out, man. Check this out, man. And he goes to the radio and he just turns it on, spins the dial, and it's some hard rock thing. He goes, check it out, man. It's all in clave. Yeah. <laughs> the American music, a lot yeah. of it is in clave. Right. It, it, consciously or subconsciously, two, two bar phrases. Mm-hmm. Two bars always use the eight bar, sometimes nine, but usually eight bar, unless you yeah. play trad blues and it can be wherever the guy decides to start or stop right yeah. but it, he just showed that to me and i'm like oh my god yeah it's all in clave you can you can kind of impose clave on most american pop music it's yeah. just coursing through our veins whether we know it or not well i want to get into um studying with richard wilson and uh did you study with him for like 13 years yeah thir- yeah 13 years yeah okay Richard Wilson changed my life in more ways than one. Uh, I had just finished studying with a fellow named Larry Troxell, whose father was a well-known drummer here in in town. And Larry Troxell uh, was was a great percussionist. He's no longer with us, but he had studied with Murray Spivak, I think when he was 12. And so I studied with, with Larry for a couple of years, went through my first my first pass at the Murray Spivak technique, which is Richard Wilson. And I finished with, with Larry and I, and I needed more. And he said, okay, there's this guy that I've heard of that one of his friends from Long Beach state university knew, and I can't think of the guy's name. He said, you should call this guy and find out about his teachers. Okay. So I, I called this guy. I wish I could remember his name. He's a, he's a bebop guy here in town. Uh, and I called him and he told me about this guy, Richard Wilson, who I'd never heard of. Yeah. Never heard of this guy. He said, you should go see him. Oh, okay. So I called Richard. He said, oh, come in tomorrow. He had a cancellation. So I went in the next day. And uh, Can I ask you how old you were when you first met him? 27. 27, okay. So I'm starting late. And, I, and I'll, I'll explain that to you in a minute. Uh, so I went in there and... And he says, okay, you know, we talk, we're hanging. And I'm saying, well, I played Las Vegas, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know the student at the time was Carlos Vega, right? <laughs> the, the guy I'm talking to had his Carnegie Hall debut when he was nine, right? I think I've done something. And really, in, in their realm, I was, you know, I, I hadn't really done much. I, I, was, I, was, I was doing okay, or I was playing, but I wasn't doing that stuff. 
So, okay. So then we sat down at the pad and he said, okay, play this, play that, play this. He's watching me. And to this day, I don't know what he did, but he just started doing something, doing something, doing something. Doing, and I'm like, I'm, I don't know if I actually did this. I have my hands to my forehead, but it was like so astounding. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm there. This is what I've been looking for. This. Yeah. So then we sat down at the pad and I still have, I still have all my lesson. The first lesson was, okay, I'm going to have to teach you how to hold a stick. And I'm like, God, man. 27 years old. God, yeah. And I just finished two years with this other guy. The first lesson is just doing quarter notes. Dun, dun, dun. He's trying to get this in 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 some alignment. He's explaining, no, no, the, the grip's this, this. Turn your wrist. It's just a wrist turn. It's not whatever you're doing. It's just a wrist turn, just a wrist turn. And then, you know, we, we started with, you know, the doubles on the wrist. But then he started introducing his concept. And what Richard Wilson is, which is why you can see why Vinny would go and study with him. Right. Richard had a... a 20th, 21st century view of rudiments. He was he was a composer, and he won National Endowment Grants for composition, right? And his stuff was very complex. It was a 12-tone swing music that's in the most astounding tempos and uh, or, or time signatures. And so then we got introduced into his, his concept of time signatures. So what happened is Fork's Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Fork's is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Fork's offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental repair and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street, Nashville, Tennessee, 37210, or call 615-838-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. I decided I'm going to have, I have to do this, even though I was, you know, not happy that I'm starting at the beginning again. And uh, it took me three months to get back in with him. I was just, it was a lark that I got that first lesson, but I was persistent. I was very, very persistent. And, and thus began my journey with him. Now, the other thing that Richard did for me, which is why I mentioned it changed my life is I didn't understand how to get gigs or to be in show business. I'm a local guy, you know, I little clubs and weddings and stuff like that. But how is it that you get a, a gig? How do you get a show gig? How do you get in anything? I didn't have any idea. Yeah. Right. And that's when Richard explained to me, look, he said, you have to understand this is a career. He says, he says, you think you're going to be discovered. He said, that's not how it happens for the most of us. You have to be in the place. You have to start sitting in. You have to start getting people to know you. Right. He said, you're not going to be discovered in some little place in East L.A. or Pico Rivera or wherever it is you're playing. You know, it's not going to happen. It's It's got to be you have to start to meet people. So he took me to meet Carlos Vega. First time I'd ever been in the baked potato. And I walk in there. It's David Garfield. It's whoever's playing. Right. It's all those guys, all the guys, the James Taylor, all the guys doing records and all stuff. And I'm watching these guys and going, I didn't know this existed here. Mm-hmm. I'm from, I was born here. 
Yeah. Right. And I didn't know this was here. Now, here, here's a funny story. Uh, it's funny to me now. So uh, I was I was when I was in high school, I was I went out to see a concert at Eagle Rock High School. Right. And uh, Eagle Rock High School is where Carlos Vega went to high school. Oh, wow. the, the, it was to see Stan Kenton. Mm-hmm. And it was astounding. But the opening act was the high school jazz band. It's Carlos Vega. <laughs> see, I put that together years later. And that's what I'm saying. See, had I known what I what Richard taught me, it's like I would have gone backstage to hang with him. Yeah. Not for anything else, just to go, oh, my God, you're amazing. And, you know, can we be friends? You know, can I be can I just <laughs> be part of this? Yeah. Right? Whatever this is to, to be part of a hang. But I, I didn't I didn't know anything about that stuff. And Richard Wilson is the guy that told me, no, no, you have to think about this like a career. You're you're like a, this is a profession, so you have to think about it like being a doctor or a lawyer. Now the problem that we have as musicians, I believe, is is this music thing is in us for whatever reason, yeah. right? And so we would give this away for free if I didn't have a mortgage to pay, if I didn't have a car, if I, who I don't. I could care less about money. I'm more interested in learning how to, how to do that than I'm about. But that's silly. I, I live in the in the capitalist environment that demands that. And Richard Wilson is the one that made me face that. Right. In a way, it's no, no, this is a profession. You you got to start to meet people. You got to get out there and sit in. And I, I'm I'm a very shy person. You, right. So I had to actually, you know, develop like a personality and go, go, hey, hi, I'm Richard Martinez. How's it going? Can I sit in? I had to learn how to do that. Well, there was a jam session at the time. Uh, uh, Alan Diaz, who was playing with Sergio Mendez, was the, at the time was was the, was the drummer there. And there was a guy that was in the Brothers Johnson, who was the leader. And it was just it was a well-known jam section, this place called Josephina's. And I knew about it. Drummer named Land Richards, uh, a drummer here in L.A., introduced me. He was working with Gladys Knight at the time. And he was one of the guys doing the baked potato, the cafe, all that stuff. Great drummer. And I got to know him. I don't know how. But he said, you need to go to Josephina's and sit in. Okay. Uh, all right. So I went there. And it's all the people like me, plus people already doing name things like Alan Diaz, all these people doing name things. And uh, last tune, I finally got up a nerve to go up there and ask the guy who was running it, can I sit in? He's looking at me and goes, who sent you? Who sent you? <laughs> I said, Land Richards sent me. He goes, oh, okay, you can sit in. <laughs> and so I sat in, and I I did great. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's just a tune. I've been doing tunes since I was in high school. I was so excited. It's like, yeah. this is it? This is all you got to do. And I started doing that. Any place and every place in the city, didn't matter. Orange County, South Bay, the Valley, for those of you who know the layout of L.A., you know what I'm talking about. Hollywood, it didn't matter. At the end of a period of time, I had shaken hands with over 150 drummers. I had their cards, keyboard players, blah, blah, blah. And just like Richard Wilson said, it started to happen. I started getting calls. Yeah, I started doing gigs, right? Yeah. That's how I would eventually end up doing this show, these shows that set me up, right? It was just because I just started doing gigs and gigs and gigs and gigs. Every gig. I worked with an Elvis impersonator. I, I just, I didn't care. I yeah. wanted to play because Richard Wilson had turned the key 
and said, this is what you got to do. And if you do this, you'll start to work. So I'm working and I'm working all the time, working all the time. And then Richard said to me, so, okay, have you been on national television yet? I went, no. He says, you know, and Richard was very direct. He says, you know, if you're not on national television before you're 30, no one's going to take you seriously. Wow. Yeah, he's he's like he's that guy. <laughs> but, holy shit. Well, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> so I'm doing this now. I have this show gig where I'm doing however many singers a night. That's the one that Roseanne Barr would eventually be on and all. Charles Nelson Riley. All these people would stop by to do this show. Yeah. And there was a group called the Perines and they wanted a drummer because they were going to be on the Joan Rivers show, right? It was a national show at the time. Yeah. And uh, they needed somebody to be their drummer. So, I, okay, I, I, I can certainly do that. So, you know, we practice, rehearse, 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 rehearse. Now we're going to do this show. And, and I was on national television before I was 30. And what happened was all these people that I was getting to know at the time, they thought of me differently. Because I'd handled being in front of millions of people. Right. And I have to say this. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about being the first time I was on national television. Uh, in the, the Joan Rivers show, I don't know if the curtain went up or it parted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, for those of you that knows what a television camera is, they have this lens. It's called the Nikigami. It's this huge lens. It's about this big, right? Yeah. I, I know because I, I got into producing television at a later time. It's a Nikigami. It's a beautiful piece of gear. And the, the curtain goes up and suddenly you see this camera like looking right at you. I almost fainted. <laughs> I'm like, ah! But I kept it together. I'm yeah. focusing, focusing. Fo- but I lost my place in the tune. Oh. I'm so at the end of the two arms we So we're playing and I'm doing the versus courses, versus courses. I'm doing that okay. And now we're coming to the end of the tune. And I got a four bars, eight bars, and I'm I'm lost. <laughs> so in, in in the tape, which I don't have, but I remember seeing at the time, the the singers are the three singers, four singers up, three singers up front, and the the shot of the singers you could see me through the singers and you see, and i got this i have this <laughs> look of terror on my face I'm yeah. like, okay here we go and i ended the tune right oh you did yeah that's and right so what happened you see my face going from this to i was so happy oh my god i did it i, I did it i i did this tune and I met the Neville brothers when I'm hanging with the Nevilles who I met in New Orleans when I was in New Orleans. I saw them at Tipitinas yeah. before they became famous again. And, uh, and I did it. And what happened now is all these people are like, Oh, Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So, so you, you can handle that. All right. So I started getting another set of gigs. People started sending me in on, on another level of stuff. Sure. Right. Yeah, so so what eventually happened, uh, if you don't mind me just kind of waxing here. Please. So I'm doing all these gigs, doing all these show gigs and all, but I'm also, it, as far as the people that I know, I'm playing in all the scenes. So I'm not limiting myself just to a single scene. And what I mean is I'm playing rock, I'm playing fusion, I'm playing jazz, but I'm also playing in all of the scenes in town. And in LA, there's lots of, isolated music scenes 
okay. that, that, don't, that don't necessarily crossbreed if you were intermingle. So I'm playing in the in the Hollywood scene. Uh, there used to be, uh, the, eventually it became the Viper Room. When I was there, it was called the Central. And it, they had this they had this jam session there. And it's it's rock people. That's, uh, it's, it's all rock guys. And I was hanging out there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I just want to play, yeah. right? I'm, I'm not thinking about, I'm not thinking about genres. I'm not thinking about anything. I want to play. And so I found out that from there, I'll circle back to the central in a second, but I'm also into avant-garde music. So when you were mentioning your son doing avant-garde, yeah. I was, I happen to be into that. Yeah. I love avant-garde music. I love playing full improvisation with no conception of time or anything. I, I love that. Right. So now I'm studying with Richard Wilson and my snare drum chops are starting to get pretty good. And there's this one thing he does called a crescendo roll. So it goes. Yeah. So there was a, there was a, a, a club in downtown LA called Al's bar. Right. It's, it's uh, sort of like a, uh, um, it's, it's where like Ricky Lee Jones and people like that would hang. It's it's the art scene. Yeah, it's in downtown. It's people did downtown LA became the downtown it is now. It's in some warehouse district in, a, in what looks to be a very unsavory area. So it's all poets and mm-hmm. and people doing art noise and stuff stuff like that. Uh, so I heard they have a jam session there where you can just do anything. So I took a snare drum and I had this concept of doing this thing of playing a snare drum solo that sounded like a wave. As if you're at the ocean, right? right, right, right so right. I went there to do that. Yeah. I just took my, it's tuned my snare drum perfectly. Uh, I went there and one of the guys I had met at, at uh, Central was this guy named David Sasloff, who was a, played the shakuhachi the Japanese flute, but you also played the trumpet. And I told him, man, I'm going to go to this thing at Al's bar. I said, okay, great. I, I, I'll meet you there. Cause he was part of, he was part of the poetry art scene as well. And so, uh, I went down there and I did my thing. Uh, it was really funny. They had this wise cracking announcer, right? At the beginning of this. So I get up there with my snare drum and, and, uh, the announcer, Hey, so we got the little drummer boy, blah, blah, blah. And I went, and the room just goes, right? You can just feel the, uh, and I, I did my thing. I did my song. The room just got deathly still. And uh, at that time, I, I kind of knew how to do that stuff. Being that thing, uh, you might call it uh, an impressionistic piece, right? Of just doing that. And it was great. And then this guy who played the shakuhachi, we ended up doing something together, shakuhachi and snare drum there. Oh, wow. So what happened then is we started he was at the central i was at the central so he said why don't we do a drum set and shakuhachi let's just do that so okay so the club was up for it yeah whatever you do you open the show who cares right so we did we would sit there and play and play and play and play well david also uh what do they call him uh, he was a kohan so what that means is is in, in is in the temple. Uh, he's Jewish in the temple, right? When when they begin certain ceremonies, they have this guy that plays the uh, the ram's horn. Yeah. Well, he played the ram's horn, but he didn't just play the ram's horn. He didn't just blow the the, the calls. He played the thing. 
he could really play the thing. And his conception was, look, there was a time when this was probably just an instrument, right? Yes. Right yes. before it became a, a, a call. And so what we, uh, at the time, as I mentioned, I was doing a lot of international music. So I knew what the traditional horror sounded like. Boom, 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 boom. It's not boom, 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 right? It's boom, 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 it's drums. So we went, so we started to do that. We went to this rock club and I'm going, boom, 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 boom. He goes, and the club went, wow, he's right. They did went crazy. Wow. And we started doing improvisations on that. And then we do like a shakuhachi thing, you know, whatever, whatever we're doing. Well, that turned into a band because he had this whole concept of, of doing shakuhachi music with, with a rhythm. So he wrote all these tunes. Eventually he got John Densmore. Of, yeah. of the doors to be an investor yeah. in the band we started working all around town right the concept that we had maybe this still exists and maybe something you can do as well is you know we had all these music festivals music and art festivals right right the taste of la to be all the cooks and they'd show up and they hire music well my thinking was why should we play clubs it's going to be always the same people why don't we play music festivals Right. All these little festivals, every little town had one. And when I'm talking little town, I'm talking about LA little towns, right? And so what I did was I did all the research and found out where every single music festival in LA, Orange County was. All yeah. of them. In those days, you had to go to the library. And I discovered that at the beginning of every phone book, it listed community events. Yep. You're the community. And it would list all the little things. And I just started calling them. Yeah, I started calling, and we started booking all these festivals, and we worked all the time. And that's got that's got to be the same now. I mean, there's there's all those festivals. We were just having this conversation a couple of days ago about opportunities for performing that aren't clubs. Yeah, and, and see, the other idea was uh, that, that aren't clubs. You see, because we wanted people and their families to enjoy what we're doing. Right. Kids and and stuff. We're never going to go to a bar. Yeah, they just aren't going to go. They can come and enjoy what we're doing, and it, it happened. It's yeah. little kids out there, you know, <laughs> dancing to the music. It was great. It was yeah. really, really great. So yeah. that was another thing I, I did for a while. So I had, so I was doing shows. I was doing uh, 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 festivals. I was doing festivals. Uh, what else? Yeah, doing shows and festivals. That was it. I wasn't working like top forty gigs what we call talk were you teaching then too no okay not i was just studying i was just i was just studying teaching actually just became it's still only something now that's sinking in i've written a lot now i have hundreds of things that i've written you're working on a book now about the murray spivak richard wilson technique is that correct okay what's what's the timeline on that what's what's i i I have no idea. It's, it's all jazz right now, man. You know, I've been working on it for a few years. Can you give us a as as best you can in this audio format an explanation of this, you know, Murray Spivak, Richard Wilson technique? Um, and there's a, there's a you know a couple things about this, but could you give us a a brief overview? I, I can give you first. I can give you a couple of people to look at. Okay. To to. If you want to see the technique in, I think, 
a real pure form, watch Chad Wackerman. Oh. Chad Wackerman studied this when he was like 12. Right. Mm-hmm. It's coursing in his veins. Yeah. It courses through his veins. You, you can really see it. The other one is uh, there's a Dave Grusin video um, with Carlos Vega. And it, it is a great sh- shot. The cameraman got a great shot through his hi-hat of his hands. There's also a great overview of his hands. And it's perfect. Okay, I'm going to look that up. That's yeah, I'll, 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 I'll send you the link. I'll, I'll put the, any links that you send, I will put in the show notes. And so our listeners can go there and click on that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's beautiful because it, at the time he was studying with Richard Wilson. Yeah. And and it, it, you can just see the essence and what, and what it is, is this technique is very, very simple. There's not a lot to it. And just to let, to let you know, I've studied many techniques over the years mm-hmm. uh, on my own, not formally. Like I studied Joe Morello for a while. I really got into Joe Morello. Mm-hmm. Joe Morello has this bounce thing he likes to do. Mm-hmm. That's Joe Morello. Right? So I have a friend that studied with Joe Morello, studied with Richard Wilson for 20 years. Mm-hmm. when he was a stockbroker and uh, he would go study with Joe Morello once a month when they, they used to send him to New York he'd study with Joe Morello over there so I I'm kind of going around a little bit but so there was a time when I was so into Joe Morello that I got together with this friend of mine Greg Albin is a great drummer mm-hmm. uh, Greg Albin we would get together it was one time we got together and we went through stick control or the first page of stick control we would do it Joe Morello style bounces and then we'd go richard wilson style yeah so so the two different things that you just you just demonstrated like this stick with the joe morello style the 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 tip of the stick was pointing straight up i mean you're the bounce well what you're doing is you're actually bouncing the stick yeah yeah so the reaction of the hand is actually in relation to the impact of the surface of the pad yeah so it's the stick the stick it's is moving heavy. more than the hand. Uh, look. Well, actually, they move in concert. Yeah. Watch. See, they, they move together. Yeah. Right? That That's the essence. It moves together. So the hand is, the rebound is sending the hand up. Gotcha. And what you do is you cannot restrict any of it, yeah. any restriction on this movement, and, and you'll, you'll spoil the effect. Richard, what we would do is we'd... We stop below. See, we stop low. Everything is stopping low. It's a wrist turn, yeah. and you stop below. We stop at the floor because everything is going to emanate from the floor. See? Yeah. Everything emulates emi, emulates from here. Emanates from here. Gotcha. It, it all does from here. It's all simple wrist turns. I want to clarify something. Um, the wrist turn, the term wrist turn is a little confusing when I first read it because I think we're thinking of, you know, turning our wrists, um, oh, like uh, a doorknob. If that's a rotate, that's a rotation. Rotation. You're, you're rotating the wrist. Wrist turn is almost like a wave, like up and down. Yeah. Is that, is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah. I, I've actually used that as, uh, sometimes, uh, when somebody is not turning their wrist, I said, look, it's, it's like a child waving bye-bye. Yes. Okay. Thank right? you. Okay. See, so, so, so that's a wrist turn. This, if you play traditional, yes. and you do this, so you're rotating your wrist. You're rotating. 
This is a rotation. Rotation as opposed right? to a turn. As mm-hmm. opposed to wrist turn. Though Richard Wilson and Freddie Gruber too, right? I, I, I heard your show on Bruce with Bruce. And, yeah. and and I studied him too. I, I have I have his DVD. Oh yeah. So I, I, yeah, so so I studied what, what he was doing. Uh, so they talk about that the left hand in this technique is really the right hand on its side. Mm. Right? So Freddie Gruber would do this thing where he'd show you that it does this. Where it really turns like this. Yes. Right? So Richard Wilson would talk about that too. So it see it turns. There, there's the turn. That's what I'll show you. See? It turns. There's the turn. Okay. It turns. Okay. But it really where you begin is you learn to rotate. Uh, Rick Dior. Do you know who Rick Dior is? I know the name. Yeah. Oh, great drummer. You gotta check this guy. He'd okay. be great. He's okay. really great, Rick Dior. Uh, so Rick Dior has you do exercises like this to learn the rotation. Yeah. Right? Rotate, 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 rotate. This, how I play, though, is I play match grip. And so it's very simple technique. One of the things, so we have a wrist turn. Turn the wrist. The grip is very simple. Uh, It becomes a three-fingered grip. Uh, One of our keys is a fulcrum, and it's important to know what a fulcrum is. A fulcrum is part of a lever system. That's what it is. So the the children's teeter-totter, right? So if you don't mind me delving into the weeds here a little bit, right? Yeah, again, it's it's difficult for us to translate all this – visual to it unfortunately but um well well that's why i'm saying if for those who are interested look up what a first class lever is right and that's where the fulcrum is if you if you study sports medicine that's what you're going to be studying you're going to be studying how the body how the body actually moves what is a joint this is this is a fulcrum the wrist is actually a fulcrum and it's being pulled by muscles right that are actually located back here someplace pulling it up that's what it does right anyway so not to go too far into the weeds here so you have a wrist turn you have a grip very simple grip uh the the three principal elements are the of the grip are the thumb Mm -hmm. thumb sits in the middle of these three fingers see right there you you got the first finger and first finger and the middle finger there yeah along with the first the first finger acts as a guide. It guides the stick. So you're not squeezing it. You're not releasing it. It stays firm and constant. So the, the fulcrum is, is in the middle finger. Is in the middle finger. Uh-huh. That, that, that's where it, And it does move, by the way. Here it's in the index finger. Yeah. Slowly rotates over. So it's in the middle finger. So you have a wrist turn. Wrist turns. Very simple wrist turn. Now, to get the up and down motion, the up motion to the down, the up motion is actually inherent in simply turning your wrist. Once. Uh, okay, so I'm going to turn my wrist. Do you see this hump? If for those of you who want to try this at home, you, you sit in there, you just touch the pad, and you'll see the wrist already starts up. See that look? See it? Yes, yes, yes. Watch. Now, there's up. Down, up, down, but it's all wrist motions. Up, down, up, down, up, down. It almost is like a, a micro molar movement. Molar actuates from the elbow. Okay. Right? So we don't begin with the elbow, we begin with the wrist. Okay. 
Thank you. Everything actually, yeah. yeah, everything actuates from 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 the wrist. So we learn to turn the wrist. We learn. We see that the motion. Uh, we have an up motion that's built in. As soon as you turn, you're going up. Now you can follow that up. Boom. Yeah. This is where if you watch Chad Wackerman or the Carlos Vega thing, yeah, you'll you'll, you'll see him play like that. Oh yeah, I mean, I did, yeah. It, there's some great videos out there, especially Wackerman with uh, Alan Holdsworth and stuff. I just I love that stuff. And years ago, uh, Chad did a clinic in Columbus, where I'm from, and he we didn't have a drum set big enough to use, so they borrowed my big DW kit. Hey, look at you! Got, huh? uh, it was it was amazing. So you you're working on a book that's coming out. Um, a, a, a couple things I wanted to get to real quick on, on this because I, I, I feel like this stuff really requires a visual element to this, and and it's 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 difficult to kind of thread that needle in this format. But just to kind of make people aware of this technique, um, that uh, there's information out there, there's more coming. Um, also, he, he, here's something else. I just I just wanted to. We've been talking a lot about Carlos Vega. There was a great article on. Uh, Richard Wilson that came out, um, well, this is 1996, mm-hmm. but they are talking to Carlos about what he learned from, from Richard. Of course, Carlos is like, do you have a week? I feel very fortunate and honored to study with Richard. He is not only a master on the drums, but he is also a composer. There was a student before me recently asking whether or not he should be practicing groove playing as opposed to some really hard stuff for your hands. I was telling him it all relates. You have your stroke, your wrist turn, and your rebound, and it's a combination of those three things. If you're practicing one thing, it's only going to help the other. I find my groove stuff feels more relaxed and snappier. The hi-hat will be nice and relaxed if I'm doing something like 16ths. My backbeat can be nice and tight because I've been practicing my rolls. This is from somebody that we all look up to as one of the groove masters. Because I'm guilty of spending a lot of time on the practice pad, probably more time on the practice pad than I do the drum set. And I need to get in it. And I want to marry those two things because I get hired to play the drum set, not the practice pad. Um, One other thing, I want to get your thoughts about these things. One other thing is is, uh, in a reaction to a YouTube comment on a video that you posted. I want to read this quickly. Um, you had a, a, a viewer say, thanks, Richard. Very inspiring. I have a question about picking up this technique after years of probably pretty bad form. I maintain a good grip when practicing on a pad when I can 100% focus on the grip. But when playing songs with a band, I find myself going back to my older, poor grip. How does one get to the point where you stop reverting back during performances? Uh, there's this, this is your response. Uh, hi, Mike. What I learned from Richard Wilson when I asked a similar question is you keep practicing the grip technique on the pad until it takes over when you're playing on the drums. The practice pad is what I like to call a rarefied environment. That is a place where we can examine, adjust, and implement changes we'd like to make. This gives us the opportunity to create new muscle memory that, given time and persistent, will eventually take over on the drums. Those those two things I feel like are related. Carlos's comment about what he's worked on, that very concentrated work on the Wilson, the Spivak Wilson method, 
translating that to the drum set that we can all aspire to knowing Carlos's history. And then your answer to that viewer's question and to assure us that this is worth the effort. This, this work and concentrated effort is we can take to the drum set. So could you speak to those things? Well, the other thing Richard said to me when I was when I asked him that question, the other which I didn't, I don't think I included in that comment was I asked Richard that question. And he, he said that stuff, but he what he said is Richard, what I asked him is what I asked him is should I try to do this on the drum set, right? Should I you know be concentrating on this stuff on the drum set? And he said no. He said you have to let this creep into your body like a fungus. Oh wow. Because what happens if in this rarefied environment of the practice pad, if you do it again and again and again and again and again and again, what happens eventually you will notice it on the drum set. Yeah. That's that's what happened to me. Is there was one time uh, I should say when I first came to Richard for first to Larry Troxel, I had I had originally played in traditional. And so I had to learn how to do this without doing this, without rotating, right, to, to do the wrist turn. So, but there was a point when I was practicing with, when I was studying with Richard, there was, a, there was a day when I finally noticed that I was turning my left hand wrist. It was just one of those moments where I went, oh, I'm turning my wrist now. I'm no longer rotating, thinking I'm turning my wrist. Now, what happened also on the drum set we, we call this the throw, and this is what you'll see Chad Wackerman doing, right, where it seems like you're throwing the stick on the big backbeat, right? Yeah. So I was doing a show, doing a concert, and Richard used to say, listen, when, once you get to the, the, when you get to a certain height and it starts to come down, it's free fall. See gravity, you, you, you apply torque, everything starts to pull. It's, it's the whip analogy. Right. Once you whip the thing, the 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 tip of the whip, it, it it's whipping. Well, the yeah. stick does the same. I'm I'm not I'm not using a lot of muscular force to do that. I'm letting the weight of the elbow, the weight of the stick, everything is causing that. I'm not I'm not putting a lot of force to that. This is just the weight. Yeah. Of the stick, the arm has weight. Let's see. The arm has weight. The shoulder yeah. has weight. This motion of sending the torque out to the tip has force. Yeah. So, so there was a time and I was doing a gig and I suddenly noticed I'm not feeling the backbeat. I'm no longer straining to make a big backbeat. I'm just throwing the stick. Yeah. And the stick is now doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I noticed that was playing the hi hat. There was a point in time, you're learning this up and down motion or doing it this way or this way, right? And there was a point in time where I'm, it really did just start to happen. And it comes from playing things like flam. That's what started to happen. The grip started to come in together. I started to lessening the tension, which I like to say, you start to lessen the tension. Oh, you, start I to, you start to identify the spot. So when you're practicing, you identify the spot. Like for me... Sometimes I still feel a little bit in my shoulders. I'll feel yeah. a little bit. In my, well, who's that old joke? Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do that. Well, don't do that, right? <laughs> That's what it is. So you start to, okay, work. So my shoulders, you start, oh, 
do I actually need to move to do this? What do I actually need to do? I just need to turn my wrist. Yeah. That's it. And you go ahead. One of the last things I wanted to ask you about is who's coming to you for lessons and what are they looking for? Well, I only have three students right now. Uh-huh. Uh, what they're looking for is they're looking to remove their the the habits that they developed, bad habits, whatever it is that they have. They're just looking to get rid of those habits. That's all. They're some they're learning how to turn their wrist. They're learning how to do rebounds. So just rebounds, and they're, they're not doing stuff with arms and so forth. They're learning a little bit more how the hand works because we all develop habits yeah on on on, on how, well, how do you get rebounds well some people smash the little thing to get it but no it, it just if you have a proper fulcrum it'll just bounce yeah so yeah. what we're looking to do is we're just looking to establish all of these things what what is a rebound what's a wrist turn what's if you're playing in traditional then what's a rotation how do you stay at the floor uh this Carlos vega thing i'll shoot you you'll see he's right at the floor Vinny. Watch Vinny Coyuta, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, v- Vinny, it's like in his blood. And, you know, I, I'm not going to credit Murray or Richard with him, though he studied with both of them, right? But you, you see these guys, and they're really, they're right here at the floor, right? So yeah. we're, we're teaching you how to be at the floor, how to honestly turn the wrist turn at all dynamic levels. Yeah. A lot of people can't play soft. Right. They can play loud, but they can't play soft. If you, in my estimation, if you can't play soft, you're really not turning your wrist. So what people are looking for uh, is they're looking how, how to do those things. How do you turn a wrist? How do you do rebounds? How do you not interfere with the motion of the stick? How do you stay away from interfering with this? Because this is what you're actually doing, right? You're controlling that. And explain so, what, what and when you say the floor, you're talking about the drum head. The, the floor, yeah, the floor is the drum head. Let's let's mm-hmm. say the floor is the drum head. Yeah. It, typically, typically you're about half an inch to an inch off the surface, and and the the arm is perpendicular to the actual floor that okay. you're sitting on, right? Yeah. So it, it has an angle. It's like this, forty five degree angle. See? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you're trying to maintain that. You're, you're trying to always come back to that. Gotcha. Always come back to that. That's what you're. So where does your snare sit in relation to you uh, when you're sitting at the drum set? Is it is it is it parallel to your arm, your forearm to the floor? Uh, I used to have it like that. I, I I finally moved it down. Okay. Just yeah, just I, so I can be relaxed. It, I, Richard and I used to do this. I used to have the snare drum really high. Yeah. Right, but. I, I it, it it wasn't comfortable for me. I, I think that's why that's why I ask. Uh, you know, I've got some friends that play traditional, so their their snares sit a little bit higher. And sometimes I'll sit behind a kid after somebody's played. If it's a house kit, I'm like, gosh, the snare drum's so high. Should I play? You know, and everybody plays things at different. So I'm just wondering how uh, your study and your knowledge of this technique maybe has affected the way you're set up uh, behind the drum set. But it, you know. Well, what what how how this study affected me is it taught me to be comfortable. Oh, just be good. just be comfortable. Yeah, you just yeah. you know if, if you if you're you're probably not going to have this snare drum too low. <laughs> you're not going to have it too high. 
yeah, you're gonna have yeah. it. You're gonna have that comfort spot. You're gonna want to get that backbeat of use rim shot backbeats. You're gonna want to be able to hit that all the time. If you're doing, you know, whatever it is you're doing, yeah, you know, just just be comfortable. Right, right. You know, I can give you another thing that you might. I don't know if you do this when you're working on a practice pad. This is what I do. I have a double pedal set up on a on a practice pad bass drum. Yeah, I've got something similar. To, I've got a like a practice kick, and I've done a little bit of that especially during COVID. <laughs> well, this is, yeah. well, this is what Richard said to me, not about that, but he always had his tap on our feet. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, you have to have that coordination, even if it's just keeping time with the metronome between the feet and the hands always. Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, going back to the new Orleans guys, they all got, all the ones I knew had great feet. It's the foot. You got to keep the foot all the time, all the time. Sometimes when I'm working here at my desk, I've got it right here, right now at my desk. I got a double foot pedal set up right here on practice pad base. I mean, I'll just sit there and just work on my feet. So what I'm saying is that when you're working on the pad, keep your feet in action all the time, even if it's just playing time with the metronome, always. So that when you get out of the kit, at least boom, bat, boom, bat, boom, bat, you, you it, it, it's it's there for you. It's just always there. There's a connection between the two. Yeah. Um, is is there are there ways that people can connect with you if they want to take a lesson or take some lessons from you? Sure. Uh, I uh, email uh, the email that I sent you. You can post that yeah. if you want. Okay. Right. And and then through my YouTube. Uh, as you know, you can post those YouTube links that I have. Okay. Post it too. Yeah, please post those. They can reach me through there too. Yeah, yeah. We can put those in the show notes and, and different things like that. Richard, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, man. Nice to meet you. And I just, thanks for sharing your knowledge and, and all this stuff. It's 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 been a lot of fun. Cool, man. All right. Yeah. Have a and, good time. Uh, yeah, and, we'll, and I'll be in touch for sure. All right. Talk to you. Okay. So there you have it, my conversation with Richard Martinez. I will try and put as much information, links, and other things in the show notes of the things we've discussed. Anything that I can't put on there, I will include on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash working drummer, to access a lot of extra bonus material and educational content. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albeda's interview with Obed Calvert. He is the drummer for Wynton Marcellus and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. That should be really great, so be sure to check that out. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Keep in touch, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.